Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, does this sound familiar to you? Ugh, this coffee. It tastes awful. It's like an incontinent monkey was using his hairy mid-digit to have a good old root around for a particularly troublesome and slightly stuck stink nugget up his spackling poo pipe and then wash that turd-coated finger in my morning coffee. Yuck! If it does, it's not the fault of the coffee. It's your mug. It's grossly inferior, it's an insult to mugs, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Bad, 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 bad. Don't you know? Scientists have proven that inferior mugs are the primary cause of sadness, war, poverty, Brexit, smelly armpits, hairy toes, droopy boobies, and King Waffly McBullshit himself, Boris Johnson. Bah! day call me what you need is a vastly superior mug. A murder mile mug. Listen to all of these out-of-work actors making appreciative noises. Ooh. Oh. Mmm. Oh. Oh. Ah, yes. They all sound like satisfied customers. And so they should be. The murder mile mug was voted the world's sexiest mug by easily duped shopper magazine was rated 5 stars by 28 well-paid YouTube influencers, and is wholeheartedly endorsed by Bobby Walthamstow, star of the reality TV show Thick Twats Doing Nout. Hiya, I'm Bobby Walthamstow, and, um, mugs and things, uh, ah, oh, sod it, I'll just do my catchphrase. I ain't all there, am I? <laughs> So buy a murder mile mug today, and suddenly, your life will be great. Your coffee will taste like a particularly sweaty Tom Hardy was stirring it using his dingle dangle. That Denzel Washington personally ground the beans himself using his muscular thighs. And that a rather vigorous Eva Green made the milk all frothy. Mmm. Eva Green makes my milk frothy. Mmm. Oh. Splot. So treat yourself to a murder mile mug today. Otherwise, your coffee breaks will sound like this. Ugh, is that sweet corn? <laughs> Ooh, you cheeky monkey. <laughs> and of course, if you enjoyed the Blackout Ripper, 
and the other side of Ten Rillington Place, Murder Mile's new multi-part series will be dribbling into your lug holes soon. But before that, there's this. Friends, welcome to Mini Mile, your indispensable compendium of UK true crime trivia. This week, we'll ask which infamous murderers love their pets, we'll investigate fingerprint powder, we'll redefine the term serial killing, we'll take a ride on London's long-forgotten railway of death, I'll read you a particularly dull letter written by the Yorkshire Ripper, and we'll investigate the untold story of Soho's Death Angel. And with only six weeks till Murder Mile's brand new multi-part series, here's this week's episode of Mini Mile. Right, let's kick things off with a little How Do You Do? by getting acquainted with some infamous murderers and serial killers on a more social level. This week, pets. Which killers loved their pets? Now the reason why I ask this is because cruelty to animals, along with bedwetting and arson, and an inability to show empathy for another living creature, is often a small but crucial step in a child's development from being a normal human being into being a serial killer. But not all serial killers hated animals. Many adored their pets. For example... Peter Manuel, dubbed the Beast of Birkinshaw, now he murdered at least seven people between 1956 and 1958 in Lanarkshire, Scotland. On the 1st of January 1958, Manuel broke into the house of Peter and Doris Smart and their 10-year-old son Michael. He shot all three family members dead without saying a single word and then helped himself to food and stayed in their home for a week amongst the dead bodies. And then, hearing the sounds of their hungry cat crying, as there was no milk in the fridge, he poured it a bowl of water, fed it a tin of kitty cat and tinned salmon, and then put the cat out so it could have a wee-wee. Dr Harold Shipman dubbed Dr Death. Although he was one of the world's most prolific serial killers, he had very few pets, except a black poodle and a few rabbits. But as a medical student at Leeds School of Medicine, Shipman would regularly complain about the caged dogs that were kept on the roof for medical testing and vivisection. And often, he would weep at the sight of the poor little dogs being led to their early deaths. Kind of ironic, really. And yet, although many badly written news articles, mostly in the tabloids, proclaim that some of the serial killers I'm going to mention were animal abusers, they actually weren't. Dennis Nielsen. Although he owned a black and white cat, years later, whilst he was in HMP Full Sutton, although Nielsen was one of 72 prisoners serving a whole life tariff, he was also allowed to keep two budgery guards in his cell, who he named Hamish and Tweedles. But instead, I'm going to talk to you about Bleep. Bleep was the faithful, loyal, and loving Border Collie Cross of London's most notorious serial killer, Dennis Nielsen. She was brought as a puppy in a local pet store on Kilburn High Road, and was named Bleep, as the puppy's muted barks sounded more like a high-pitched squeak. 
Nielsen absolutely adored Bleep. He fed her, brushed her, bathed her, and the two would take lovely long walks together on Hampstead Heath. Bleep was his best friend, his closest companion, and in Nielsen's eyes, the only one who ever truly loved him. But in 1978, after a few volatile months together, Twinkle, Nielsen's boyfriend, walked out, causing Nielsen to spiral out of control, and with his rage uncontrollable and fueled by anger and drink, he killed 15 young men in just five years. I wanted to stop sooner, Nielsen said after his arrest, but after he'd murdered his second victim, Kenneth Ockenden, he knew he'd be locked up for life, and his main concern was, if I'm put away, what will happen to Bleep? Unfortunately, Nielsen's concerns were proved right, as just three days after he was imprisoned, Bleep was put to death by lethal injection as the police believed that no one would want to own her. And her only crime was being the faithful, loyal and loving dog of a serial killer. Myra Hindley. Now she owned a tan and white collie called Puppet, which she was totally besotted by. Unfortunately, after her arrest as an accessory to the brutal murder of 17-year-old Edward Evans, and the discovery of her partner, Ian Brady's suitcase, which contained a series of highly disturbing photos, and a 13-minute audio tape of the torture and murder of 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey, police were alerted to a few photos of Hindley and her dog Puppet, taken on saddle with Moore, at different times and they wondered whether this was a macabre memorial taken on top of a shallow grave. Sadly, they were right. As Hindley refused to cooperate, they needed to find a way to accurately date the photos, and to do that, they needed to determine the age of Puppet. So they put the dog under anaesthetic to x-ray her teeth. Unfortunately, Puppet died during the procedure, and Hindley was inconsolable. Later stating, I feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me any more than this. Oddly, she never showed any remorse for her victims. Her partner, Ian Brady. Now, lazy biographers often state that the Moore's murderer, Ian Brady, was an animal abuser whether torturing cats or drowning dogs. But as much as this makes for good newspaper copy, it's simply not true. Ian Brady truly loved animals. As a young child, he had three rabbits, a big grey called Jenny, a big black called Harry, and a small Dutch called Smokey. He also had a black and silver German shepherd called Una, and a cocker spaniel called Sheila, at whose death the ten-year-old Brady was inconsolable. Also, in an incident recounted to DCI Peter Topping of Manchester CID, when Brady was just a child, growing up in the Gorbals in Glasgow, he saw an injured horse which had slipped on the icy road. A canvas screen was erected, and the horse was euthanized with a house brick. Brady said, It lay there with its massive sides heaving, and its breath steaming the frosty air. 
I can still see the great liquid eyes rolling in terror. They were going to kill the horse. My chest was bursting, and I began to cry. Now even if this story is a fabrication, it seems unlikely that he was an animal abuser, especially as Brady reportedly asked for the proceeds of his autobiography, Blacklight, to be split between four animal charities. Now, for one of the world's most infamous mass murderers and pet lovers, Adolf Hitler. Now, it may seem odd that a man with so much hatred who orchestrated the Holocaust and the deaths of six million Jews could have had so much love for pets. But it's true. Hitler loved his dogs. These included Fuchsie, a white fox terrier who Hitler found as a stray, nurtured and raised during World War I, and was reportedly distraught when the dog was lost during a trench bombing. There was also Prince, a German shepherd, who comforted Hitler during his post-World War I years of poverty. But as Hitler was unable to afford to feed Prince, he had to rehome her. But she always escaped and returned to her loving master. Now, after these dogs, there would also be Muckle, a German shepherd, Blonda, who was born in 1928, Blonda, the daughter of Blonda, who was born in 1930, Bella, who was another German shepherd who was brought from a minor official in Ingolstadt post office, the nearest town to his countryside retreat, which was dubbed as the Wolf's Lair, in 1942, solely to keep the other dogs company. And more famously, there was his beloved Blondie. On the 29th of April 1945, as the Soviets closed in on Berlin, Hitler decided to take his own life. But fearing that his SS-issued cyanide capsule lacked the necessary potency, he ordered Dr. Werner Haas to test them on Blondie, who died instantly. After which, Hitler became inconsolable at the death of his beloved dog, and so at Hitler's request, his dog handler shot Eva Brown's two dogs and Blondie's litter of puppies in the garden of that infamous bunker. In fact, there's one more story that I can tell you about serial killers and their pets. It involves Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and you'll hear about it in the Dead Letter section. Now, it's time to get technical. Let's get technical, technical. I want to get technical. Let's get technical. Let me hear your bottom squeak. Your bottom squeak. Let me hear your bottom squeak. Yes, folks, it's time to get technical. As I, the Gus Grissom of true crime trivia, only fatter and with less hair, strip away the blither, blather and bluster of all those overstyled CSI crime shows and ask, how exactly does it work? This week, fingerprint powder. What is it? How does it work? And how can you beat it? We've all seen fingerprint powder used on crime scene investigation shows. That's where they twiddle and twirl a fine brush of dark powder over a desk and suddenly we see some fingerprints, someone gets arrested and it's case closed. So, what is fingerprint powder used on? Everything you would think. No. 
Powder is just one of several methods used by forensics to detect, copy and remove fingerprints from a scene. As more effective and less destructive methods, such as close-up photography, clear adhesive tape and the removal of the object is preferred. So dusting for prints is almost exclusively used for any evidence which is difficult to remove from the crime scene, such as walls, windows, desks, floors, etc. How does it work? Well, if you look at your fingers, palms or feet, you'll see that there's a series of very fine, very unique friction ridges on the skin. Not only do these epidermal ridges assist us in gripping rough surfaces and improve our grip on wet surfaces, they also amplify our sensory nerves in the perception of fine textures. That's why our fingers and feet are super sensitive. Now across the tops of these epidermal ridges are the natural oily secretions from our sweat glands. So when you place a finger, palm or foot on a surface, your skin leaves a secretion of oil in the shape of the peaks of those ridges as the ridge itself doesn't secrete any oil. And the fingerprint powder sticks to that oily residue. So what is fingerprint powder made from? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. Historically, lycopodium powder was used, and that's a very yellowy dust-like powder which is made from the dry spores of club moss and various types of ferns. The downside of this being that lycopodium powder was highly flammable. The most common powder currently in use today is aluminium powder, which is very fine, it's dark, it's malleable, it doesn't tend to congeal or clump, and it shows up on a variety of surfaces. But there is no single fingerprint powder which is absolutely perfect, as different surfaces require different powders with different properties. So what makes a good fingerprint powder? Well, these can be broken down into four categories. Firstly, fineness. As the finer the powder, the greater you can see the details of the fingerprint. Number two, adhesion. The powder must adhere to the oil which is secreted, but not the rest of the surface print. Number three, sensitivity. The powder needs to adhere to the surface, but without it warping the delicate oily residue on its application. Some powders are actually applied by using fine brushes, some have powder blown across them, and also magnetic powders are used. That's where metallic particles are gently moved onto the oily print, using a metallic applicator. Now this often is the preferred method as it causes the least damage to the print. And finally, number four, color. The darker the surface that the fingerprint is on, the lighter the powder that is used. Otherwise, a black powder on a black tabletop would be unrecognizable. So what are the best and worst surfaces to get a very clear fingerprint off? The easiest, of course, is anything that is smooth, clean and glossy. That would be glass, cling film, sellotape, kitchen tiles, porcelain, smooth wooden or plastic furniture, and most smooth metal surfaces such as aluminium. Now going down scale, it's slightly more trickier to get fingerprints off manufactured surfaces. So that would be paper and cardboard, as obviously that absorbs the oil. Painted surfaces, as this depends on how evenly the paint has been applied. Leather as it's not smooth and has a very unique fibre. And most car dashboards, because if you look at them, they're not smooth, they're ridged. Now on the medium level, 
there would be organic surfaces. Now you can actually get fingerprints off tree leaves, fruit and feathers. But these are quite difficult to do. Now getting into the very difficult category here is fibres. Many synthetic fibres are difficult to get fingerprints off. You can also get fingerprints off human skin, but don't forget this is oil on oil, so it's very difficult. And any rough or textured surfaces. Now one very important one is the grip on handguns. If you have an old style shotgun with a walnut grip, that's because it's lacquered. You can get a really good pull of a fingerprint off that. But most modern handguns, actually the grip is textured, so you can't actually get a fingerprint off that. It's almost impossible. And finally, it's virtually impossible to get fingerprints off anything which is oily, rusty or dirty. Now, one of those included is guns. I know in a lot of TV shows you see people and they go, let's, let's get the fingerprint off the gun. The Met Police say that the chance of getting a clean print off a gun is about 5%. Because firstly, don't forget, as I've just mentioned, grips are impossible to get a fingerprint off. And also guns traditionally are very oily. And it's impossible to get a clear, stable fingerprint of a gun because of its oil. So, you're probably thinking, there's one way to ensure that I never leave a fingerprint at a crime scene, and that's to wear gloves. Am I right? Wrong. That's the mistake that all criminals make. And they think that by wearing gloves, it will make them undetectable. But there is such a thing as a glove print. Glove prints are a fingerprint-like impression which is made by the wearer of the gloves, which are just as unique as human fingerprints. Glove prints have been used since 1971 to successfully convict offenders, with the first glove print database established by the Derbyshire Police Force, and almost all types of gloves leave prints. For example, latex gloves. Into this category I'm going to add rubber gloves, plastic gloves and vinyl gloves. Now, because latex gloves are lightweight, they're cheap, they're a tight fit and they're very flexible, criminals prefer these gloves as it allows their fingers to be quite dexterous. But because the material is quite thin, the oil from their fingers can be passed through the material onto the surface. Or, as they put the gloves on, the oily residue from their fingers becomes adhered to the outside of the glove, which provides a perfect print if the glove is found. Or the oil on the outside of the glove can be transferred onto another surface. And don't forget, all the oil that is secreted contains human DNA. Now leather gloves, which I'm going to term as murderer's gloves, but also into this category you can throw in woolen gloves, cotton gloves and fabric gloves. Now, all of these gloves have a good grip and they're quite durable, but the surface of these gloves are as unique as a fingerprint, as owing to its wear and tear, which is caused by unique ridges, cuts and grooves in the material. And as these gloves can cause the wearer's hands to sweat even more than they usually would, this increases the amount of dirt and grit which is soaked into the grain of the glove, making the glove's own print even more unique, and worse still, providing even more sweat, which contains DNA. Of course, if you want to make sure that you don't leave any fingerprints at a crime scene, the only way to not get caught is to shave off your epidermal ridges, ouch, soak your hands in hydrochloric acid, ooh, peel off your skin, ah, 
Cut off your hands. Yikes! Or better still, don't become a criminal in the first place. You knob. And that is my top tip for the week. Order, order. The distinctly dishonourable Judge Michael presides. Everyone take your seats. Get your bribes ready. Cake, biscuits, attractive daughters, all is good. And prepare to say, I am the law. Like Sylvester Stallone was taking a crap after a particularly dodgy donut-based diet. As I give you all a quick overview of some legal lingo. Silence in court. This week, what differentiates a murderer, a mass murderer, a serial killer and a spree killer? Before we begin, I must state that these definitions are highly contested amongst legal professionals and law enforcement alike, so they are very prone to change, manipulation and disagreement. So, a murderer. As we laid out last week, murder is a form of criminal homicide involving the unlawful killing of another person with premeditation, that's a plan to kill, their actions have criminal intent, and by minimum definition, they will have intentionally murdered at least one person. That's a murderer. Next is a spree killer. A spree killer is a person or a group who commits two or more murders over a short period of time, normally less than a month, in multiple locations and with almost no cooling-off period between the murders. So the Blackout Ripper, who murdered four women in four different locations over four consecutive days, is a perfect example. A mass murderer is a person or a group who commits several murders, the FBI states this as four or more, which occur either simultaneously or over a relatively short period of time, and in a single location or within close proximity. And just like a spree killer, there is no cooling off period. Mass murders can be committed by a group or a single person as mentioned, and are usually, but not always, attributed to cults, fascists, terrorists, acts of genocide and mass shootings, with some form of persecution acting as the catalyst for the murderer. A good example of this is the mass shooting at Columbine High School. Now, a serial killer is often a person who acts alone, although this is not always the case, who commits three or more murders, usually for personal gratification, over a period of more than a month, and includes a cooling-off period between each murder. Now, three or more murders is a very vague definition, as the FBI defines... A serial killing as a series of two or more murders. And yet other law enforcement authorities define it as at least four murders. Perfect examples of this would be the Yorkshire Ripper, Dennis Nielsen, etc. Whew! There. I hope that makes a little more sense. And if you're a murderer who has been unfairly labelled as a serial killer or a mass murderer, When you're quite clearly a spree killer, there will be a helpline number for you to call after the show. Hello, Gullible Person's Helpline. Michael speaking, how can I help you? What? You're actually going to wait till the end of the episode to see if there's a helpline number for distraught murderers? 
and you're already writing me a stern email to complain, all because you've got no sense of humour and you've got nothing better to do. Oh, okay. Bye-bye. Trust me, I get emails like that. Right, now, I'm very poor, and I desperately need to buy some of life's essentials. You know, the usual. Battenberg, Eccles Cakes, Angel Delight, maybe some fruit, flavoured cake, maybe a cake with fruit, although that's not high on my list. Although trifle is. Mm, yum. So here's a really awkward space for a really annoying advert, which is supposed to be dynamic advertising, meaning the advert is hand-picked according to your personal details, which I find a little bit creepy. But it'll probably end up being a Tampax advert for men and hairy ass cream for women. Anyway, enjoy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's the one advert? Don't ask me. I don't know. My host tells me nothing. If you heard an advert, that'll probably make me half of a 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 pea. And that's literally a garden pea. If you didn't hear an advert, I'll just have to starve again. (laughs) And now, on with the show. So, like most British men at the beach, on the one sunny day of the year, let's tentatively dip our big toe into... The Strange Zone. Where I shall impart to you a tasty morsel of morbid trivia, which will make you go, Wow, Michael, you're not only handsome, sexy, and a likely candidate for the Mr. Universe contest, but you filled my brain with some fascinating new shit, which I could impress my friends with, but I'll probably forget it by the time I finish my tenth glass of vino collapso. This week, we shall discuss the Necropolis, London's railway of death. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. 
Once, London had a rail line that was so special you could only reserve a ticket by paying the ultimate price. You could only ride it if you were dead. And if you were one of the chosen few, you could only make one trip, in one direction, from Waterloo to your final resting place. It was called the Necropolis Railway, and it was London's own railway of death. With the ever-expanding city of London being short on space, with burial plots being brought up at a premium, and mortuaries fit to bursting with a backlog of bodies stacking up, following the cholera outbreak of 1856, which killed one-sixth of Soho's population in the space for a week, as well as smallpox, measles, typhoid, and the numerous plague epidemics of 1343, 1593, 1665, 1673 and 1692, just to name but a few. With the city's population decimated, London needed somewhere to bury these freshly decomposing dead. Surely they could have simply built another central London cemetery. Unfortunately not. In 1851, the Burials Act was passed. Previously to accommodate the growing city, new burial plots were created by simply digging up old graves, reinterring the bodies, or more often than not, scattering the decomposing remains and remnants of thousands of dead and forgotten relatives to free up space. The effect of which hastily exacerbated the cholera, plague and typhoid outbreaks. Therefore, under the Burials Act of 1851, new graves were prohibited in any built-up areas of London. Upon completion of a new, stylish and spacious, but not exactly local, Brookwood Cemetery, which was situated 30 miles south in the county of Surrey, Sir Richard Braun and Richard Spry strive to find a way to make this new burial site accessible, popular and profitable for the average Londoner, whilst also treating the recently deceased with a sense of style, class and occasion. But more importantly, keeping the corpses at a safe distance, given the city's current queasiness over the many communicable diseases associated with death. Keen to make the most of the latest innovation in modern engineering, the steam train, the London Necropolis Railway was established, the Railway of Death. Its aim to build a train station, a train track and a terminus, dedicated solely for the purpose of transporting the dearly departed to their place of rest, complete with a coffin, flowers and grieving relatives. Two temporary stations were opened at Brookwood Cemetery in Surrey. The South Station, for strictly Anglican burials, and the North Station, for all other religions. With London's main necropolis station opening on the 13th of November 1854, and sited at London's Waterloo. Unfortunately, these stations no longer exist. Although both the South and the North stations were cheerfully used up until the 1940s as a refreshment kiosk, Anyone for an ask of a tea? And so, in the late 19th century, to cope with demand and following the rapid expansion of Waterloo Station, the necropolis was recited in an especially built building on Westminster Bridge Road, complete with waiting rooms, a chapel for funeral services, lifts to raise the coffins up onto the platform, and in the railway arches, 
a mortuary to store the bodies. Although the necropolis's popularity waned in the early 20th century, as London and its populace expanded further beyond the city limits, with new towns springing up, and as transport to and from the city became quicker, cheaper and easier, during its operation, the Necropolis Railway transported over 200,000 recently deceased Londoners to their final resting place. But it wasn't until the 16th of April 1941, when a bombing raid by the German Luftwaffe decimated the Waterloo Terminus, that the Necropolis Railway ceased. The last recorded funeral to be carried on the Necropolis Railway was that of Chelsea pensioner Edward Irish on the 11th of April 1941. And on the 11th of May 1941, just one month after the bombing, the London Necropolis Railway was closed. Personally, I'd want to be carried to my grave in an ice cream van. Firstly, because I love ice cream. And secondly, because it would seriously screw up a lot of kids. Especially if they asked for a chocolate Mr Whippy. Kids. Right. What's that plopping through my letterbox? Is it a free paper featuring no news stories and an inexhaustible supply of adverts for second-hand shit so crappy that even eBay won't accept it? Very possibly. Is it a mucky calendar full of lovely nudie ladies suggestively eating all manner of cakes such as Black Forest Gatto, Baked Alaska and Mississippi Mud Pie? I wish. Is it that package from Amazon that I've been waiting weeks for? No, because I'm absolutely certain that my sticky-fingered postman nicked it and now he spends his nights dressed in a Knight Rider onesie with a red flashing light going across his privates. So what could it be? Why, it's the Dead Letter Drop! Yes, each week I shall read you a rather mundane and quite possibly a very boring letter written by an infamous serial killer. This week, Peter Sutcliffe, also known as the Yorkshire Ripper. Peter Sutcliffe was convicted of brutally murdering 13 women and attempting to murder seven others, in the late 1970s and early 1980s in Leeds and Bradford in the north of England. And so horrific were their injuries that he was dubbed the Yorkshire Ripper. Being declared insane, Sutcliffe was, and currently still is, housed at Broadmoor Psychiatric Prison on an indeterminate sentence. And this letter was written by Sutcliffe to Sandra Lester, a friend, model, escort girl, part-time stripper, and supposed confidant, who later sold his story to the papers. They started writing in 1993, but the love letters stopped when he asked her to marry him, and she said no. This letter is dated the 9th of June 1998. It is handwritten with very curly handwriting, and with a sticker of a palm tree on the top of the letter. Now Sutcliffe uses excessive grammar and punctuation, so I'm going to emphasise these as I read the letter. Dear Sandy, hi, two exclamation marks. How are you today? I hope this letter finds you happy and in the best of health, small kiss. I received your nice wee letter today. It's such a bright and cheery letter, so thanks for that. I hope you're right about what you said about something changing for the better. 
in brackets, as there's something in the air, etc. Close brackets. Now there's a page missing here, but it goes on to say, Pleased it's happening at long last. As you say, Dad will be in touch when he's got himself sorted! Exclamation mark. Did I mention that I had a nice visit from Maria last Saturday? She was telling me all about her holiday! Exclamation mark. She really enjoyed herself and brought me loads of postcards back, etc. Two exclamation marks, smiley face. She said the weather was very hot all the time, and she obviously caught the sun, so she was looking very well. She said she'd been staying in London for a few days, before making her way back home! Exclamation mark. Anyways, take care for now, four is in the number four, because you're in my thoughts. I send you all of my love and great, great spelt G-R-8, I send you all of my love and great big caring hugs. Hugs in capitals, two exclamation marks. No, three in fact, three exclamation marks. Love, Pete. Eight kisses. The next up is an interesting letter written by Sutcliffe to his friend Chris in 2015. Again, there are pages missing, but the letter ends like this. Now, he's obviously replying to a lot of questions here. So, yes, exclamation mark. I have heard of Ian Brady's book, The Gates of Janus, and I'd been told ages ago that there's a bit about me in it. But I'm not interested in reading about myself, Chris. Ha, exclamation mark. No, I didn't know they sent Keith Richards to Wormwood Scrubs, exclamation mark. Yeah, Charles Bronson also spent time here at Broadmoor, until he caused a lot of damage on the roof. His previous name was Mickey Peterson, by the way, exclamation mark. There's a DVD out called Bronson, and it's been on the telly over here a few times, exclamation mark. He was known for taking hostages, etc., exclamation mark. He's a pretty good artist, though. I've seen quite a few of his sketches. Two exclamation marks, smiley face. Well, it's almost time for my usual 9.30pm phone call, Chris. So I'll try and finish off this letter, and I'll send it in the post, ready for the early morning collection tomorrow. Well, my good and dear friend, take care of yourself for now, you hear? Two exclamation marks, smiley face. Best wishes and regards as always. Your pal, Pete. Big kiss. Now, in a later letter, it's clear that Chris recounted the entire contents of a phone conversation between himself and Peter Sutcliffe to the tabloid newspaper, The News of the World, including a crappy joke Sutcliffe had made, which he was most displeased about. Sad face, five exclamation marks. And if you fancy hearing what Peter Sutcliffe actually sounded like, rather than listening to my rather pathetic impersonation, which I think was a little bit more Reg Christie, Here's that clip I mentioned about earlier on, with a reference to the kittens that he had as a child. Before I was on the mission, you know, yeah. I had voices for two years, getting did... good advice when I got depressed, and what? thinking about my grandma that was buried in the cemetery where I worked, and that, you know, she lived with us, we were very close. Yeah. And I blamed myself for her death. Yeah. Uh, Cause she to... was coming down the steps and do some... We had two little kittens, you know, we were playing with them at the bottom of the steps. I was in the kitchen, sat at the table, and I heard a clump clumping down the steps. Yeah. And she was about nearly 80, you know, and a bit unsteady on her feet. And I said, Grandma, be careful. She was nearly at the bottom. I said, there's a kitten playing there. 
and Clum, Clum still kept coming down, you know, and she stepped on one and all blood came out of its mouth and it, she yeah. killed it, you know. Was she, was she grand talking to your head, into your, was she grand talking to you in your head or was it God? No, it wasn't my grandma, no, no. No. No, I, I thought at the time it was God, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, what did you, what did he say? Oh, all kinds of things, good advice and that, not to get down and... Yeah. You weren't responsible for your grandma's death and that. Stop blaming yourself, you know. And finally, dear friends, before we go, to say to your lust for untold true crime stories from London's West End, here's a story you haven't heard on the podcast before. In a section I call West End Deaths. West End Deaths. This week, The story of Soho's Death Angel. Let me ask you a question. Are you always early, often arriving an hour before a meeting to get your bearings, having blocked out the route and leaving nothing to chance? Are you a bastion of being bang on time, scraping in by the skin of your teeth as the clock bongs, lamenting the lateness of others as each whole minute passes by? Or are you a notoriously late ninny? not caring how long others have had to wait, as you regale them, all red-faced and flustered, with an overlong tail. Whichever you are, maybe it's time to rethink your relationship with punctuality, as every second of life is precious. And besides, you never know which second will be your last. During the Blitz of 1940-41, to as 50,000 bombs and over a million incendiary devices rained down from the heavily droning heavens, potmarking the bustling streets of London with hot pockets of fire that turned the sky black, the night skyline red, and killed 40,000 civilians in its wake. A bomb dropped on Soho. On the 24th of September 1940, at 11.38pm, in Orange Yard, Soho, a small, slim cul-de-sac situated between Manet Street and Gosselet's Yard, where Freddie Mills was killed, just to the side of the site formerly occupied by Foyle's bookshop. A German bomb dropped, killing three people. That bomb was an SC-50, a 50-kilogram weapon containing 25 kilograms of highly explosive TNT and it was the most common bomb dropped by the Luftwaffe during the Second World War. Of these three victims, the first died in a merchant's building in Orange Yard, as a result of a direct hit. No one is sure what killed the occupant first, whether he was crushed by falling debris as a structure gave way, whether it was the strength of the blast wave which blew his arms, legs and head from his torso, or whether it was the intensity of the heat which vaporised his body in an instant. Either way, there was very little for his family to identify his body. The second victim died on the first floor of number 16 Manet Street, a row of terraced houses just to the side of Orange Yard, and although the building was only partially occupied at the time, Most of the lodgers got away with nothing more than superficial cuts and shock, as much of the blast wave from the explosion was dissipated by the strength of the walls. Unfortunately, one lady was not so lucky. A piece of shrapnel from the bomb casing, 
which can travel as far as a kilometre away and up to seven times the speed of sound, pierced the wall and struck her in the head, killing her instantly as she lay in her bed. Whereas the third victim died on Manet Street, just outside of Foyle's bookshop, over 50 feet away. But unlike the others, she had no injuries of any kind, no cuts, no bruises, no grazes and no burns. Her clothes weren't even ruffled, and her face was the image of peace and serenity, just like an angel. At first, as she lay there in the street, passers-by thought that she was asleep, but she wasn't. She was dead. Rescue teams during the Blitz referred to this kind of injury as blast lung. Effectively, as the bomb exploded, it sent out a massive pressure wave, which did untold damage to the merchant's building which stood in Orange Yard, killing the occupant instantly. But as the weakened blast wave hit the first floor terraced house on 16 Manit Street, it hadn't got enough strength left to cause any serious damage. But there was enough energy to turn the bomb shrapnel into a lethal projectile which embedded itself into the lady's head. Whereas with the third victim who lay in the street, although she was beyond the blast radius, away from the scorching heat, and with no razor-sharp shrapnel heading her way, like white-hot bullets, she still wasn't safe. With no walls between the explosion and her to dissipate the blast, the much-weakened blast wave had made its way down the alley of Orange Yard, using the walls on either side like the barrel of a gun, focusing the pressure wave, so that by the time it hit her, it hadn't got enough energy to knock her off her feet, but it had enough energy to crush her lungs, to squeeze all the life and oxygen out of her body, causing her to keel over and die of asphyxiation. No one knows where the third victim was going that night. It's logical to assume that she was on her way to the local air raid shelter, the nearest to Orange Yard being underneath Soho Square, which held between two to three hundred people, and it's still there today. So, you're probably thinking, what has her timekeeping got to do with this? Well, according to eyewitness testimony, the third victim, who was never formally identified, but it is believed that she was not local, was last seen walking quickly but carefully across Charing Cross Road towards Manet Street, when she stopped to help a little boy who had fallen. And then, as the desperate wail of the air raid sirens grew louder, she quickened her pace, only slightly, but it was enough to ensure that she kept her date with destiny. As the bomb was dropped, both she and the little boy were safe, being shielded as they stood behind the walls of 16 Manet Street. And had she stayed there, she would have survived. But by the time the bomb had exploded, she had already moved on and was standing between the two walls in the alley of Orange Yard, away from safety and in the direct path of the killer blast wave. It is approximately 18 feet between both walls on either side of Orange Yard, which means if she was running, the difference between her life and her death was barely one second.
So, now you know. But before we go, here's some quickie news of minor crimes in London's West End. This week, we've got a tube wanker. At the City of London's Magistrates Court, just a few days ago, 37-year-old Sarah Hinkson was found guilty of public lewdness. As whilst travelling east on a tube train on the Hammersmith and City line, Sarah was so overcome, pardon the pun, Sarah was so overcome with excitement, probably at the knowledge that Murder Mile was returning, that she sprawled herself across four seats and with her hand down her trousers, she pleasured herself for ten minutes. Yes, she was flicking the bean, double-clicking the mouse and playing a bit of double bass, all whilst moaning loudly. And yet, being typically British, none of her fellow commuters said anything for ten minutes until the alarm was raised and she was arrested at King's Cross Station. Thank you to Court News for publishing that gem. Obviously, she was clearly very excited at having ordered her new Murder Mile mug. Ooh! Now, if she had used that as a defence, she probably would have got off. Although, it sounds like she was already getting off. Ahaha! And so, my beloved friends... That was your weekly dose of Mini Mile. Your new exciting Murder Mile multi-part series is coming in May, and next week there will be even more Mini Mile. And if you've got any comments, original questions, and any unusual topics you'd love me to research and discuss, let me know. You can contact me via email, my website, or any social media platform. A big thank you this week to my new Patreon supporters, who are Ross Ferguson. Dvor Elkfitty, Andrew Rowland, and Wendy Krell, as well as my current Patreon supporters and all of my loyal and lovely listeners, many of whom who've shared this podcast and have written me some lovely reviews, so I thank you all. Murder will be back next week, but before that, here's my recommended podcast of the week. Love to you all. Teddy bye! podcast we look at cases of missing people unresolved investigations and above all we focus on uk true crime so if you want to listen to uk cases and care about little known stories that might have been forgotten about then we are the podcast for you join me caprice every sunday as we delve into these stories You can find The Unseen Podcast anywhere you are currently listening and I hope you can join me in discussing forgotten and unresolved cases. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.